Chapter Twelve, Part One, of the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Your reader, Michael Armenta. Chapter Twelve, Geographical Distribution. Present distribution cannot be accounted for by differences in physical conditions, importance of barriers, affinity of the productions of the same continent, centers of creation, means of dispersal by changes of climate and of the level of the land, and by occasional means, dispersal during the glacial period, alternate glacial periods in the north and south. In considering the distribution of organic beings over the face of the globe, the first great fact which strikes us is that neither the similarity nor the dissimilarity of the inhabitants of various regions can be wholly accounted for by climatal and other physical conditions. Of late, almost every author who has studied the subject has come to this conclusion. The case of America alone would almost suffice to prove its truth, for if we exclude the Arctic and northern temperate parts, all authors agree that one of the most fundamental divisions in geographical distribution is that between the new and old worlds. Yet, if we travel over the vast American continent, from the central part of the United States to its extreme southern point, we meet with the most diversified conditions, humid districts, arid deserts, lofty mountains, grassy plains, forests, marshes, lakes, and great rivers, under almost every temperature. There is hardly a climate or condition in the old world which cannot be paralleled in the new, at least so closely as the same species generally require. No doubt small areas can be pointed out in the old world hotter than any in the new world, but these are not inhabited by a fauna different from that of the surrounding districts for it is rare to find a group of organisms confined to a small area of which the conditions are peculiar in only a slight degree notwithstanding this general parallelism in the conditions of the old and new worlds how widely different are their living productions in the southern hemisphere if we compare large tracts of land in australia south africa and western south america between latitudes twenty five and thirty five degrees we shall find parts extremely similar in all their conditions, yet it would not be possible to point out three faunas and floras more utterly dissimilar. Or again we may compare the productions of South America, south of latitude 35 degrees, with those north of 25 degrees, which consequently are separated by a space of 10 degrees of latitude, and are exposed to considerably different conditions yet they are incomparably more closely related to each other than they are to the productions of australia or africa under nearly the same climate analogous facts could be given with respect to the inhabitants of the sea a second great fact which strikes us in our general review is that barriers of any kind or obstacles to free migration are related in a close and important manner to the differences between the productions of various regions we see this in the great difference in nearly all the terrestrial productions of the new and old worlds excepting in the northern parts where the land almost joins and where under a slightly different climate there might have been free migration for the northern temperate forms as there now is for the strictly arctic productions we see the same fact in the great difference between the inhabitants of australia africa and south america under the same latitude for these countries are almost as much isolated from each other as is possible. 
on each continent also we see the same fact for on the opposite sides of lofty and continuous mountain ranges and of great deserts and even of large rivers we find different productions though as mountain chains deserts etc are not as impassable or likely to have endured so long as the oceans separating continents the differences are very inferior in degree to those characteristic of different continents turning to the sea we find the same law the marine inhabitants of the eastern and western shores of south america are very distinct with extremely few shells crustacea or echinodermata in common but dr gunther has recently shown that about thirty per cent of the fishes are the same on the opposite sides of the isthmus of panama and this fact has led naturalists to believe that the isthmus was formerly open westward of the shores of america a wide space of open ocean extends with not an island as a halting place for emigrants here we have a barrier of another kind and as soon as it has passed we meet in the eastern islands of the pacific with another and totally distinct fauna so that three marine faunas range northward and southward in parallel lines not far from each other under corresponding climate but from being separated from each other by impassable barriers either of land or open sea they are almost wholly distinct on the other hand proceeding still further westward from the eastern lands of the tropical parts of the pacific we encounter no impassable barriers and we have innumerable islands as halting places or continuous coasts until after travelling over a hemisphere we come to the shores of africa and over this vast space we meet with no well-defined and distinct marine faunas although so few marine animals are common to the above-named three approximate faunas of eastern and western america and the eastern pacific islands yet many fishes range from the pacific into the indian oceans and many shells are common to the eastern islands of the pacific and the eastern shores of africa on almost exactly opposite meridians of longitude a third great fact partly included in the foregoing statement is the affinity of the productions of the same continent or of the same sea though the species themselves are distinct at different points and stations it is a law of the widest generality and every continent offers innumerable instances nevertheless the naturalist in travelling for instance from north to south never fails to be struck by the manner in which successive groups of beings specifically distinct though nearly related replace each other he hears from closely allied yet distinct kinds of birds notes nearly similar and sees their nests similarly constructed but not quite alike with eggs coloured in nearly the same manner the plains near the straits of magellan are inhabited by one species of rhea american ostrich and northward the plains of la plata by another species of the same genus and not by a true ostrich or emu like those inhabiting africa and australia under the same latitude on these same plains of la plata we see the agouti and bischaka animals having nearly the same habits as our hares and rabbits and belonging to the same order of rodents but they plainly display an american type of structure we ascend the lofty peaks of the cordillera and we find an alpine species of bischaka we look to the waters and we do not find the beaver or muskrat but the copu and capybara rodents of the south american type 
innumerable other instances could be given if we look to the islands off the american shore however much they may differ in geological structure the inhabitants are essentially american though they may be all peculiar species we may look back to past ages as shown in the last chapter and we find american types then prevailing on the american continent and in the american seas we see in these facts some deep organic bond throughout space and time over the same areas of land and water independently of physical conditions the naturalist must be dull who is not led to inquire what this bond is the bond is simply inheritance that cause which alone as far as we positively know produces organisms quite like each other or as we see in the case of varieties nearly alike the dissimilarity of the inhabitants of different regions may be attributed to modification through variation and natural selection and probably in a subordinate degree to the definite influence of different physical conditions the degrees of dissimilarity will depend on the migration of the more dominant forms of life from one region into another having been more or less effectually prevented at periods more or less remote on the nature and number of the former immigrants and on the action of the inhabitants on each other in leading to the preservation of different modifications the relation of organism to organism in the struggle for life being as i have already often remarked the most important of all relations thus the high importance of barriers comes into play by checking migrations as does time for the slow process of modification through natural selection widely ranging species abounding in individuals which have already triumphed over many competitors in their own widely extended homes will have the best chance of seizing on new places when they spread out into new countries in their new homes they will be exposed to new conditions and will frequently undergo further modification and improvement and thus they will become still further victorious and will produce groups of modified descendants on this principle of inheritance with modification we can understand how it is that sections of genera whole genera and even families are confined to the same areas as is so commonly and notoriously the case there is no evidence as was remarked in the last chapter of the existence of any law of necessary development as the variability of each species is an independent property and will be taken advantage of by natural selection only so far as it profits each individual in its complex struggle for life so that the amount of modification in different species will be no uniform quantity if a number of species after having long competed with each other in their old home were to migrate in a body into a new and afterwards isolated country they would be little liable to modification for neither migration nor isolation in themselves affect anything these principles come into play only by bringing organisms into new relations with each other and in a lesser degree with the surrounding physical conditions as we have seen in the last chapter that some forms have retained nearly the same character from an enormously remote geological period so certain species have migrated over vast spaces and have not become greatly or at all modified according to these views it is obvious that the several species of the same genus though inhabiting the most distant quarters of the world 
must originally have proceeded from the same source, as they are descended from the same progenitor. In the case of those species which have undergone, during whole geological periods, little modification, there is not much difficulty in believing that they have migrated from the same region, for, during the vast geographical and climatical changes which have supervened since ancient times, almost any amount of migration is possible. But in many other cases in which we have reason to believe that the species of a genus have been produced within comparatively recent times, there is great difficulty on this head. It is also obvious that the individuals of the same species, though now inhabiting distant and isolated regions, must have proceeded from one spot where their parents were first produced, for, as has been explained, it is incredible that individuals identically the same should have been produced from parents specifically distinct. Single Centers of Supposed Creation We are thus brought to the question which has been largely discussed by naturalists, namely, whether species have been created at one or more points of the earth's surface, undoubtedly there are many cases of extreme difficulty in understanding how the same species could possibly have migrated from some one point to the several distant and isolated points where now found nevertheless the simplicity of the view that each species was first produced within a single region captivates the mind he who rejects it rejects the vera causa of ordinary generation with subsequent migration and calls in the agency of a miracle it is universally admitted that in most cases the area inhabited by a species is continuous and that when a plant or animal inhabits two points so distant from each other or with an interval of such a nature that the space could not have been easily passed over by migration the fact is given as something remarkable and exceptional the incapacity of migrating across a wide sea is more clear in the case of terrestrial mammals than perhaps with any other organic beings and accordingly we find no inexplicable instances of the same mammals inhabiting distant points of the world no geologists feels any difficulty in great britain possessing the same quadrupeds with the rest of europe for they were no doubt once united but if the same species can be produced at two separate points why do we not find a single mammal common to europe and australia or south america the conditions of life are nearly the same so that a multitude of european animals and plants have become naturalized in america and australia and some of the aboriginal plants are identically the same at these distant points of the northern and southern hemispheres the answer as i believe is that mammals have not been able to migrate whereas some plants from their varied means of dispersal have migrated across the wide and broken interspaces the great and striking influence of barriers of all kinds is intelligible only on the view that the great majority of species have been produced on one side and have not been able to migrate to the opposite side some few families many subfamilies very many genera a still greater number of sections of genera are confined to a single region and it has been observed by several naturalists that the most natural genera or those genera in which the species are most closely related to each other are generally confined to the same country or if they have a wide range 
that the range is continuous. What a strange anomaly it would be if a directly opposite rule were to prevail when we go down one step lower in the series, namely to the individuals of the same species, and these had not been, at least at first, confined to some one region. Hence it seems to me, as it has to many other naturalists, that the view of each species having been produced in one area alone, and having subsequently migrated from that area, as far as its powers of migration and subsistence under past and present conditions permitted, is the most probable. Undoubtedly many cases occur in which we cannot explain how the same species could have passed from one point to the other, but the geographical and climatical changes, which have certainly occurred within recent geological times, must have rendered discontinuous the formerly continuous range of many species, so that we are reduced to consider whether the exceptions to continuity of range are so numerous and of so grave a nature that we ought to give up the belief, rendered probable by general considerations, that each species has been produced within one area, and has migrated thence as far as it could. It would be hopelessly tedious to discuss all the exceptional cases of the same species, now living at distant and separated points. Nor do I for a moment pretend that any explanation could be offered of many instances. But after some preliminary remarks, I will discuss a few of the most striking classes of facts, namely, the existence of the same species on the summits of distant mountain ranges, and at distant points in the Arctic and Antarctic regions. And secondly, in the following chapter, the wide distribution of fresh water productions, and thirdly, the occurrence of the same terrestrial species on islands and on the nearest mainland, though separated by hundreds of miles of open sea. If the existence of the same species at distant and isolated points of the earth's surface can, in many instances, be explained on the view of each species having migrated from a single birthplace, then, considering our ignorance with respect to former climatical and geographical changes, and to the various occasional means of transport, the belief that a single birthplace is the law seems to me incomparably the safest, in discussing this subject, we shall be enabled at the same time to consider a point equally important for us, namely, whether the several species of a genus, which must, on our theory, all be descended from a common progenitor, can have migrated, undergoing modification during their migration from some one area. If, when most of the species inhabiting one region are different from those of another region, though closely allied to them, it can be shown that migration from the one region to the other has probably occurred at some former period, our general view will be much strengthened, for the explanation is obvious on the principle of descent with modification. A volcanic island, for instance, upheaved and formed at the distance of a few hundreds of miles from a continent, would probably receive from it, in the course of time, a few colonists, and their descendants, though modified, would still be related by inheritance to the inhabitants of that continent. Cases of this nature are common, and are, as we shall hereafter see, inexplicable on the theory of independent creation. This view of the relation of the species of one region to those of another does not differ much from that advanced by Mr. Wallace, who concludes that, quote, 
every species has come into existence coincident both in space and time with the pre-existing closely allied species and it is now well known that he attributes this coincidence to descent with modification the question of single or multiple centres of creation differs from another through allied question namely whether all the individuals of the same species are descended from a single pair or single hermaphrodite or whether as some authors suppose from many individuals simultaneously created with organic beings which never intercross if such exist each species must be descended from a succession of modified varieties that have supplanted each other but have never blended with other individuals or varieties of the same species so that at each successive stage of modification all the individuals of the same form will be descended from a single parent but in the great majority of cases namely with all organisms which habitually unite for each birth or which occasionally intercross the individuals of the same species inhabiting the same area will be kept nearly uniform by intercrossing so that many individuals will go on simultaneously changing and the whole amount of modification at each stage will not be due to descent from a single parent to illustrate what i mean our english race-horses differ from the horses of every other breed but they do not owe their difference and superiority to descent from any single pair but to continued care in the selecting and training of many individuals during each generation before discussing the three classes of facts which i have selected as presenting the greatest amount of difficulty on the theory of quote, single centres of creation end quote, i must say a few words on the means of dispersal means of dispersal sir c lyell and other authors have ably treated this subject i can give here only the briefest abstract of the more important facts change of climate must have had a powerful influence on migration a region now impassable to certain organisms from the nature of its climate might have been a high road for migration when the climate was different i shall however presently have to discuss this branch of the subject in some detail changes of level in the land must also have been highly influential a narrow isthmus now separates two marine faunas submerge it or let it formerly have been submerged and the two faunas will now blend together or may formerly have blended where the sea now extends land may be at a former period have connected islands or possibly even continents together and thus have allowed terrestrial productions to pass from one to the other no geologist disputes that great mutations of level have occurred within the period of existing organisms edward forbes insisted that all the islands in the atlantic must have been recently connected with europe or africa and europe likewise with america other authors have thus hypothetically bridged over every ocean and united almost every island with some mainland if indeed the arguments used by forbes are to be trusted it must be admitted that scarcely a single island exists which has not been recently united to some continent this view cuts the gordian knot of the dispersal of the same species to the most distant points and removes many a difficulty 
but to the best of my judgment we are not authorized in admitting such enormous geographical changes within the period of existing species it seems to me that we have abundant evidence of great oscillations in the level of the land or sea but not of such vast changes in the position and extension of our continents as to have united them within the recent period to each other and to the several intervening oceanic islands i freely admit the former existence of many islands now buried beneath the sea which may have served as halting-places for plants and for many animals during their migration in the coral-producing oceans such sunken islands are now marked by rings of coral or atolls standing over them whenever it is fully admitted as it will some day be that each species has proceeded from a single birthplace and when in the course of time we know something definite about the means of distribution we shall be enabled to speculate with security on the former extension of the land but i do not believe that it will ever be proved that within the recent period most of our continents which now stand quite separate have been continuously or almost continuously united with each other and with the many existing oceanic islands several facts in distribution such as the great difference in the marine faunas on the opposite sides of almost every continent the close relation of the tertiary inhabitants of several lands and even seas to their present inhabitants the degree of affinity between the mammals inhabiting islands with those of the nearest continent being in part determined as we shall hereafter see by the depth of the intervening ocean these and other such facts are opposed to the admission of such prodigious geographical revolutions within the recent period as are necessary on the view advanced by forbes and admitted by his followers the nature and relative proportions of the inhabitants of oceanic islands are likewise opposed to the belief of their former continuity of continents nor does the almost universally volcanic composition of such islands favor the admission that they are the wrecks of sunken continents if they had originally existed as continental mountain ranges some at least of the islands would have been formed like other mountain summits of granite metamorphic schists old fossiliferous and other rocks instead of consisting of mere piles of volcanic matter i must now say a few words on what are called accidental means but which more properly should be called occasional means of distribution i shall here confine myself to plants in botanical works this or that plant is often stated to be ill adapted for wide dissemination but the greater or less facilities for transport across the sea may be said to be almost wholly unknown until i tried with mr berkeley's aid a few experiments it was not even known how far seeds could resist the injurious action of sea-water to my surprise i found that out of eighty-seven kinds sixty-four germinated after an immersion of twenty-eight days and a few survived an immersion of one hundred and thirty-seven days it deserves notice that certain orders were far more injured than others nine leguminosae were tried and with one exception they resisted the salt water badly seven species of the allied orders hydrophilaceae and polemoniaceae were all killed by a month's immersion for convenience sake i chiefly tried small seeds 
without the capsules or fruits, and as all of these sank in a few days, they could not have been floated across the wide spaces of the sea, whether or not they were injured by salt water. Afterwards I tried some larger fruits, capsules, etc., and some of these floated for a long time. It is well known what a difference there is in the buoyancy of green and seasoned timber, and it occurred to me that floods would often wash into the sea dried plants or branches with seed capsules or fruit attached to them. Hence I was led to dry the stems and branches of ninety-four plants with ripe fruit, and to place them on sea-water. The majority sank quickly, but some which, whilst green, floated for a very short time, when dried, floated much longer. For instance, ripe hazelnuts sank immediately, but when dried, they floated for ninety days, and afterwards, when planted, germinated. An asparagus plant with ripe berries floated for twenty-three days. When dried, it floated for eighty-five days, and the seeds afterwards germinated. The ripe seeds of the Helosiadium sank in two days. When dried, they floated for above ninety days, and afterwards germinated. Altogether, out of the ninety-four dried plants, eighteen floated for above twenty-eight days, and some of the eighteen floated for a very much longer period. So that, as sixty-four out of eighty-seven kinds of seeds germinated after an immersion of twenty-eight days, and as eighteen out of ninety-four distinct species with ripe fruit, but not all the same species, as in the foregoing experiment, floated, after being dried, for above twenty-eight days, we may conclude, as far as anything can be inferred from these scanty facts, that the seeds of fourteen out of one hundred kinds of plants of any country might be floated by sea currents during twenty-eight days, and would retain their power of germination. In Johnson's Physical Atlas, the average rate of the several Atlantic currents is thirty-three miles per diem, some currents running at the rate of sixty miles per diem. On this average, the seeds of fourteen out of one hundred plants belonging to one country might be floated across nine hundred and twenty-four miles of sea to another country, and when stranded, if blown by an inland gale to a favorable spot, would germinate. Subsequently to my experiments, M. Martens tried similar ones, but in a much better manner, for he placed the seeds in a box in the actual sea, so that they were alternatively wet and exposed to the air like really floating plants. He tried ninety-eight seeds, mostly different from mine, but he chose many large fruits, and likewise seeds, from plants which live near the sea, and this would have favoured both the average length of their flotation and their resistance to the injurious action of the salt water. On the other hand, he did not previously dry the plants, or branches, with the fruit, and this, as we have seen, would have caused some of them to have floated much longer. The result was that eighteen out of ninety-eight of his seeds of different kinds floated for forty-two days, and were then capable of germination. But I do not doubt that plants exposed to the waves would float for a less time than those protected from violent movement, as in our experiments. Therefore it would perhaps be safer to assume that the seeds of about ten out of one hundred plants of a flora, after having been dried, could be floated across a space of sea nine hundred miles in width, 
and would then germinate the fact of the larger fruits often floating longer than the small is interesting as plants with large seeds or fruit which as adolphe de candon has shown generally have restricted ranges could hardly be transported by any other means seeds may be occasionally transported in another manner drift timber is thrown up on most islands even on those in the midst of the widest oceans and the natives of the coral islands in the pacific procure stones for their tools solely from the roots of drifted trees these stones being a valuable royal tax i find that when irregularly shaped stones are embedded in the roots of trees small parcels of earth are very frequently enclosed in their interstices and behind them so perfectly that not a particle could be washed away during the longest transport out of one small portion of earth thus completely enclosed by the roots of an oak about fifty years old three dicotyledonous plants germinated i am certain of the accuracy of this observation again i can show that the carcasses of birds when floating on the sea sometimes escape being immediately devoured and many kinds of seeds in the crops of floating birds long retain their vitality peas and vetches for instance are killed by even a few days immersion in sea-water but some taken out of the crop of a pigeon which had floated on artificial sea-water for thirty days to my surprise nearly all germinated living birds can hardly fail to be highly effective agents in the transportation of seeds i could give many facts showing how frequently birds of many kind are blown by gales to vast distances across the ocean we may safely assume that under such circumstances their rate of flight would often be thirty-five miles an hour and some authors have given a far higher estimate i have never seen an instance of nutritious seeds passing through the intestines of a bird but hard seeds of fruit pass uninjured through even the digestive organs of a turkey in the course of two months i picked up in my garden twelve kinds of seeds out of the excrement of small birds and these seemed perfect and some of them which were tried germinated but the following fact is more important the crops of birds do not secrete gastric juice and do not as i know by trial injure in the least the germination of seeds now after a bird has found and devoured a large supply of food it is positively asserted that all the grains do not pass into the gizzard for twelve or even eighteen hours a bird in this interval might easily be blown to the distance of five hundred miles and hawks are known to look out for tired birds and the content of their torn crops might thus readily get scattered some hawks and owls bolt their prey whole and after an interval of from twelve to twenty hours disgorge pellets which as i know from experiments made in the zoological gardens include seeds capable of germination some seeds of the oat wheat millet canary hemp clover and beet germinated after having been from twelve to twenty-one hours in the stomachs of different birds of prey and two seeds of beet grew after having been thus retained for two days and fourteen hours fresh-water fish i find eat seeds of many land and water plants fish are frequently devoured by birds and thus the seeds might be transported from place to place 
I forced many kinds of seeds into the stomach of dead fish, and then gave their bodies to fishing eagles, storks, and pelicans. These birds, after an interval of many hours, either rejected the seeds in pellets, or passed them in their excrement, and several of these seeds retained the power of germination. Certain seeds, however, were always killed by this process. Locusts are sometimes blown to great distances from the land. I myself caught one 370 miles from the coast of Africa, and have heard of others caught at greater distances. The Reverend R. T. Lowe informed Sir C. Lyle that in November 1844 swarms of locusts visited the island of Madeira. They were in countless numbers, as thick as the flakes of snow in the heaviest snowstorm, and extended upward as far as could be seen with a telescope. During two or three days they slowly careered round and round an immense ellipse, at least five or six miles in diameter, and at night alighted on the taller trees, which were completely coated with them. Then they disappeared over the sea, as suddenly as they had appeared, and have not since visited the island. Now, in parts of Natal, it is believed by some farmers, though on insufficient evidence, that injurious seeds are introduced into their grassland in the dung left by the great flights of locusts, which often visit that country. In consequence of this belief, Mr. Wheel sent me, in a letter, a small packet of the dried pellets, out of which I extracted, under the microscope, several seeds, and raised from them seven grass plants, belonging to two species of two genera, hence a swarm of locusts, such as that which visited Madeira, might readily be in the means of introducing several kinds of plants into an island lying far from the mainland. Although the beaks and feet of birds are generally clean, earth sometimes adheres to them. In one case I removed sixty-one grains, and in another case twenty-two grains of dry, argillaceous earth from the foot of a partridge and in the earth there was a pebble as large as the seed of a vetch. Here is a better case. The leg of a woodcock was sent to me by a friend, with a little cake of dry earth attached to the shank, weighing only nine grams, and this contained a seed of the toad-rush, Juncus buffonius, which germinated and flowered. Mr. Swaysland of Brighton, who during the last forty years has paid close attention to our migratory birds, informs me that he has often shot wagtails, motacillae, wheat-ears, and wind-chats, saxicoli, on their first arrival to our shores, before they had alighted, and he has several times noticed little cakes of earth attached to their feet. Many facts could be given showing how generally soil is charged with seeds. For instance, Professor Newton sent me the leg of a red-legged partridge, Cacabus rufa, which had been wounded and could not fly, with a ball of hard earth adhering to it, and weighing six and a half ounces. The earth had been kept for three years, but when broken, watered, and placed under a bell-glass, no less than eighty-two plants sprung from it. These consisted of twelve monocotyledons, including the common oat, and at least one kind of grass, and of seventy dicotyledons, which consisted, judging from the young leaves, of at least three distinct species. With such facts before us, 
can we doubt that the many birds which are annually blown by gales across great spaces of ocean and which annually migrate for instance the millions of quails across the mediterranean must occasionally transport a few seeds embedded in dirt adhering to their feet or beaks but i shall have to recur to this subject as icebergs are known to be sometimes loaded with earth and stones and have even carried brushwood bones and the nest of a land bird it can hardly be doubted that they must occasionally as suggested by lyle have transported seeds from one part to another of the arctic and antarctic regions and during the glacial period from one part of the now temperate region to another in the azores from the large number of plants common to europe in comparison with the species on the other islands of the atlantic which stand nearer to the mainland and as remarked by mr h c watson from their somewhat northern character in comparison with the latitude i suspected that these islands had been partly stocked by ice-borne seeds during the glacial epoch at my request sir c lyle wrote to m hartung to inquire whether he had observed erratic boulders on these islands and that he answered that he had found large fragments of granite and other rocks which do not occur in the archipelago hence we may safely infer that icebergs formerly landed their rocky burdens on the shores of these mid-ocean islands and it is at least possible that they may have been brought hence we may safely infer that icebergs formerly landed their rocky burdens on the shores of these mid-ocean islands and it is at least possible that they may have brought thither the seeds of northern plants considering that these several means of transport and that other means which without doubt remain to be discovered have been in action year after year for tens of thousands of years it would i think be a marvellous fact if many plants had not thus become widely transported these means of transport are sometimes called accidental but this is not strictly correct the currents of the sea are not accidental nor is the direction of prevalent gales of wind it should be observed that scarcely any means of transport would carry seeds for very great distances these means however would suffice for occasional transport across tracts of sea some hundred miles in breadth or from island to island or from a continent to a neighbouring island but not from one distant continent to another the floras of distant continents would not by such means become mingled but would remain as distinct as they are now the currents from their course would never bring seeds from north america to britain though they might and do bring seeds from the west indies to our western shores where if not killed by their very long immersion in salt water they could not endure our climate almost every year one or two land birds are blown across the whole atlantic ocean from north america to the western shores of ireland and england but seeds could be transported by these rare wanderers only by one means namely by dirt adhering to their feet or beaks which is in itself a rare accident even in this case how small would be the chance of a seed falling on favourable soil and coming to maturity but it would be a great error to argue that because a well-stocked island like great britain has not as far as is known and it would be very difficult to prove this 
received within the last few centuries through occasional means of transport immigrants from europe or any other continent that a poorly stocked island though standing more remote from the mainland would not receive colonists by similar means out of a hundred kinds of seeds or animals transported to an island even if far less well stocked than britain perhaps not more than one would be so well fitted to its new home as to become naturalized but this is no valid argument against what would be effected by occasional means of transport during the long lapse of geological time whilst the island was being upheaved and before it had become fully stocked with inhabitants on almost bare land with few or no destructive insects or birds living there nearly every seed which chanced to arrive if fitted for the climate would germinate and survive dispersal during the glacial period the identity of many plants and animals on mountain summits separated from each other by hundreds of miles of lowlands where alpine species could not possibly exist is one of the most striking cases known of the same species living at distant points without the apparent possibility of their having migrated from one point to the other it is indeed a remarkable fact to see so many plants of the same species living on the snowy regions of the alps or pyrenees and in the extreme northern parts of europe but it is far more remarkable that the plants on the white mountains in the united states are all the same with those of labrador and nearly all the same as we hear from asa gray with those on the loftiest mountains of europe even as long ago as seventeen forty seven such facts led mellon to conclude that the same species must have been independently created at many distinct points and we might have remained in this same belief had not agassiz and others called vivid attention to the glacial period which as we shall immediately see affords a simple explanation of these facts we have evidence of almost every conceivable kind organic and inorganic that within a very recent geological period central europe and north america suffered under an arctic climate the ruins of a house burnt by fire do not tell their tale more plainly than do the mountains of scotland and wales with their scorched flanks polished surfaces and perched boulders of the icy streams with which their valleys were lately fitted so greatly has the climate of europe changed that in northern italy gigantic moraines left by old glaciers are now clothed by the vine and maize throughout a large part of the united states erratic boulders and scored rocks plainly reveal a former cold period the former influence of the glacial climate on the distribution of the inhabitants of europe as explained by edward forbes is substantially as follows but we shall follow the changes more readily by supposing a new glacial period slowly to come on and then pass away as formerly occurred as the cold came on and as each more southern zone became fitted for the inhabitants of the north these would take the places of the former inhabitants of the temperate regions the latter at the same time would travel further and further southward unless they were stopped by barriers in which case they would perish the mountain would become covered with snow and ice and their former alpine inhabitants would descend to the plains by the time that the cold had reached its maximum 
we should have an arctic fauna and flora covering the central parts of europe as far south as the alps and pyrenees and even stretching into spain the now temperate regions of the united states would likewise be covered by arctic plants and animals and these would be nearly the same with those of europe for the present circumpolar inhabitants which we suppose to have everywhere travelled southward are remarkably uniform round the world as the warmth returned the arctic forms would retreat northward closely followed up in their retreat by the productions of the more temperate regions and as the snow melted from the bases of the mountains the arctic forms would cease on the cleared and thawed ground always ascending as the warmth increased and the snow still further disappeared higher and higher whilst their brethren were pursuing their northern journey hence when the warmth had fully returned the same species which had lately lived together on the european and north american lowlands would again be found in the arctic regions of the old and new worlds and on many isolated mountain summits far distant from each other thus we can understand the identity of many plants at points so immensely remote as the mountains of the united states and those of europe we can thus also understand the fact that the alpine plants of each mountain range are more especially related to the arctic forms living due north or nearly due north of them for the first migration when the cold came on and the remigration on the returning warmth would generally have been due south and north the alpine plants for example of scotland as remarked by mr h c watson and those of the pyrenees as remarked by raymond are more especially allied to the plants of northern scandinavia those of the united states to labrador those of the mountains of siberia to the arctic regions of that country these views grounded as they are on the perfectly well ascertained occurrence of a former glacial period seem to me to explain in so satisfactory a manner the present distribution of the alpine and arctic productions of europe and america that when in other regions we find the same species on distant mountain summits we may almost conclude without other evidence that a colder climate formerly permitted their migration across the intervening lowlands now become too warm for their existence as the arctic forms moved first southward and afterwards backward to the north in unison with the changing climate they will not have been exposed during their long migrations to any great diversity of temperature and as they all migrated in a body together their mutual relations will not have been much disturbed hence in accordance with the principles inculcated in this volume these forms will not have been liable to such modification but with the alpine productions left isolated from the moments of the returning warmth first at the bases and ultimately on the summits of the mountains the case will have been somewhat different for it is not likely that all the same arctic species will have been left on mountain ranges far distant from each other and have survived there ever since they will also in all probability have become mingled with ancient alpine species which must have existed on the mountains before the commencement of the glacial epoch and which during the coldest period will have been temporarily driven down to the plains they will also have been subsequently exposed to somewhat different climatical influences their mutual relations will thus have been in some degree disturbed 
consequently they will have been liable to modification and they have been modified for if we compare the present alpine plants and animals of the several great european mountain ranges one with another though many of the species remain identically the same some exist as varieties some as doubtful forms or some species and some as distinct yet closely allied species representing each other on the several ranges in the foregoing illustration i have assumed that at the commencement of our imaginary glacial period the arctic productions were as uniform round the polar regions as they are at the present day but it is also necessary to assume that many sub-arctic and some few temperate forms were the same round the world for some of the species which now exist on the lower mountain slopes and on the plains of north america and europe are the same and it may be asked how i account for this degree of uniformity of the sub-arctic and temperate forms round the world at the commencement of the real glacial period at the present day the sub-arctic and northern temperate productions of the old and new worlds are separated from each other by the whole atlantic ocean and by the northern part of the pacific during the glacial period when the inhabitants of the old and new worlds lived further southwards than they do at present they must have been still more completely separated from each other by wider spaces of ocean so that it may well be asked how the same species could then or previously have entered the two continents the explanation i believe lies in the nature of the climate before the commencement of the glacial period at this the newer pliocene period the majority of the inhabitants of the world were specifically the same as now and we have good reason to believe that the climate was warmer than the present day hence we may suppose that the organisms which now live under latitude sixty degrees lived during the pliocene period further north under the polar circle in latitude sixty six to sixty seven degrees and that the present arctic productions then lived on the broken land still nearer to the pole now if we look at a terrestrial globe we see under the polar circle that there is almost continuous land from western europe through siberia to eastern america and this continuity of the circumpolar land with the consequent freedom under a more favourable climate for intermigration will account for the supposed uniformity of the sub-arctic and temperate productions of the old and new worlds at a period anterior to the glacial epoch believing from reasons before alluded to that our continents have long remained in nearly the same relative position though subjected to great oscillations of level i am strongly inclined to extend the above view and to infer that during some earlier and still warmer period such as the older pliocene period a large number of the same plants and animals inhabited the almost continuous circumpolar land and that these plants and animals both in the old and new worlds began slowly to migrate southwards as the climate became less warm long before the commencement of the glacial period we now see as i believe their descendants mostly in a modified condition in the central parts of europe and the united states on this view we can understand the relationship with very little identity between the productions of north america and europe 
a relationship which is highly remarkable considering the distance of the two areas and their separation by the whole atlantic ocean we can further understand the singular fact remarked on by several observers that the productions of europe and america during the later tertiary stages were more closely related to each other than they are at the present time for during these warmer periods the northern parts of the old and new worlds will have been almost continuously united by land serving as a bridge since rendered impassable by cold for the intermigration of their inhabitants during the slowly decreasing warmth of the pliocene period as soon as the species in common which inhabited the new and old worlds migrated south of the polar circle they will have been completely cut off from each other this separation as far as the more temperate productions are concerned must have taken place long ages ago as the plants and animals migrated southward they will have become mingled in the one great region with the native american productions and would have had to compete with them and in the other great region with those of the old world consequently we have here everything favorable for such modification for far more modification than with the alpine productions left isolated within a much more recent period on the several mountain ranges and on the arctic lands of europe and north america hence it has come that when we compare the now living productions of the temperate regions of the new and old worlds we find very few identical species though asa gray has lately shown that more plants are identical than was formerly supposed but we find in every great class many forms which some naturalists rank as geographical races and others as distinct species and a host of closely allied or representative forms which are ranked by all naturalists as specifically distant as on the land so in the waters of the sea a slow southern migration of a marine fauna which during the pliocene or even a somewhat earlier period was nearly uniform along the continuous shores of the polar circle will account on the theory of modification for many closely allied forms now living in marine areas completely sundered thus i think we can understand the presence of some closely allied still existing and extinct tertiary forms on the eastern and western shores of temperate north america and the still more striking fact of many closely allied crustaceans as described in dana's admirable work some fish and other marine animals inhabiting the mediterranean sea and the seas of japan these two areas being now completely separated by the breadth of a whole continent and by wide spaces of ocean these cases of close relationship in species either now or formerly inhabiting the seas on the eastern and western shores of north america the mediterranean and japan and the temperate lands of north america and europe are inexplicable on the theory of creation we cannot maintain that such species have been created alike in correspondence with the nearly similar physical conditions of the areas for if we compare for instance certain parts of south america with parts of south africa or australia we see countries closely similar in all their physical conditions with their inhabitants utterly dissimilar 
End of chapter 12, part 1